0: Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui billens and today we'll be hearing from the legendary researcher Lyle Campbell. Before we turn to the interview, I just wanted to remind you that you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. If you have a question about fieldwork or if you've already done some fieldwork and you have an experience to share, please write in. On the last episode of season one we will be discussing listener questions and trying to answer them the best we can so please email us so with that out of the way let's turn to the interview with lyle campbell thank you for listening so today i would like to welcome lyle campbell onto the podcast lyle is a very well-known linguist known for his studies of indigenous american languages especially those of Central and South America. Also on historical linguistics in general, his research and teaching specializations include indigenous languages of the Americas, documentation and revitalization of endangered languages, historical linguistics, and typology. He is the author of 21 books and over 200 articles. Two of his books, American Indian Languages, the Historical Linguistics of Native America, and Historical Syntax and Cross-Linguistic Perspectives, co-written with Alice C. Harris, were awarded the Leonard Bloomfield Book Award by the Linguistic Society of America for the best book in linguistics published in the previous two years. He is also co-founder of the Catalog of Endangered Languages and a member of the Governance Council for the Endangered Languages Project. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy conference schedule to speak with us. I'm very honored that you had time today to talk.
1: It's a pleasure, and I wish you all the best of success with your podcast.
0: Thank you so much. So to start, you've had a very long and successful career in linguistics involving much fieldwork. Can you tell us a bit about where you've conducted fieldwork during your career?
1: Uh, I can. <laughs> I've, I've done uh, fieldwork with communities in Central America and South America, uh, many, some in North America as well. I think the, I, I did a lot of work in Mayan with Mayan languages and Mayan language communities and other communities in Central America, and I've also done quite a bit of work in uh, South America, especially in the Chaco region.
0: Can you tell us a bit about how you started working in Central and South America? Do you have some kind of personal connection or a, a research interest in those languages?
1: Uh, yes, I always had uh, interest in those languages. I actually started wanting to work in Uralic languages, and I spent a lot of time trying to learn something about that. But I discovered that there are lots of good people working there, and that there is simply so much more that needs to be done in the Americas where there aren't people working either to document the languages or to help communities that are interested in in uh, supporting or revitalizing their languages, and so I, I just switched to the Americas. I, I, I was lucky because I, I had some courses in some Native American languages as an undergraduate, and then I was on some Peace Corps projects to write grammars of a, of a Mayan language and, and of Quechua, and, and so I had some start before I actually then had to make decisions about where to go and do field work.
0: Cool. Um, and do you have any particular fieldwork experiences that stick out in your mind that you could share?
1: Oh yes, too many. <laughs> I, I, I would try to think of the ones that would be perhaps most uh, valuable for someone who's contemplating doing fieldwork who hasn't done it before. I think that the choice is always partly a matter of just opportunity and, and personal interest, what your background is and things like that. Uh, the kinds of experiences I had, they're, they're all the wonderful ones where, you know, the wonderful people you, you interact with and the, the friends and relationships that you make. And then there are the difficult ones. The difficult ones are the ones where no one tells you how horrible the fleas are. My father called them the man-eating Central American fleas. Uh, and there are just these uncomfortable things about, you know, insects biting you and all the illnesses you get. I think I got amoebic dysentery nearly every time I went to do field work. Uh, one called Histolytica seemed to love me. Uh, and uh, the, the, the kinds of hardships that that involve just travel, you know, getting on buses where the the bus drivers are so macho they want to compete with each other with the lives of 100 people, racing each other up and down mountainsides against oncoming traffic and things like that. There's some scary, horrible things that happen, but, but also lots of wonderful things. In my field work, I often ended up, you know riding mules or horses way off into the sticks and, and then ending up in a different climate zone where I didn't have enough clothing or, or or something like that or ending up in a in a village where you end up sleeping on the bench in the in the local school or in the local jail where the fleas eat you alive <laughs> things like that I could tell you a couple of stories if you want the yeah. well I'll tell you a shorter one and then if you have time I'll tell you a longer yeah. one So when I worked with Xinka people in Guatemala, uh, near the coast of Guatemala, I asked the the guys I was working with about a a story someone wrote that was about some uh, a folklore story, but it had some something like witchcraft in it, and they didn't want to answer. And I thought, okay, well this is a delicate topic; we won't pursue this. And then later they asked me, well, why did you ask that? You have all those powers, and I thought what do you mean I have those powers? And so I asked them, and they they said, well, you can leave your body and go off in your spirit and do your deeds whether they be good or bad, and we can tell when you come back because we can hear your spirit land on the roof. (laughs) And so they thought I was a witch, uh, a sorcerer, and it turns out that they thought most old people in the village were witches too. (laughs) I was quite shocked about that. Uh, usually I was considered, you know, I, they, they thought I was either Peace Corps or, or, or a priest or something like that, mm-hmm. but uh, they, were, they didn't seem to mind that I was to them a witch. Uh, another one is a little bit longer. It was when I was doing some field work in Peru and Bolivia. We were doing a, a, a survey of dialects of Quechua, and people kept telling us about this very unusual dialect in Apolo, Bolivia, and kept recommending that we should go there and it was we didn't want to because it was very difficult to get there. You either had to check over the Andes for three weeks or you had to go in with the bush pilots, which are never safe. <laughs> and so eventually, after we were told so often how important it was, we decided to go. To go there, we had to get a document called the Salvo Conducto from the government, which meant basically you had permission to go into an area where there were gorillas. Supposedly, there was gorilla activity in the area. And then we show up to the uh, airplane, and it's in pieces, and they're filing things, and so it was very late taking off, a small bush plane. And then they uh, put it back together, and there were only four seats, and then the back part had all these iron elbows for building, and then the bottom had beef carcasses, which they were flying out. To people to eat, so it stunk to high heaven. Uh, And then they had denounced the bubonic plague in the area we were going to, so they sprayed the airplane with DDT, so it really, really stunk. Actually, after we took off, it wasn't so bad, Uh, but it was bad in the beginning. And I was the gentleman, so I ended up sitting on the iron elbows because there weren't enough seats for all of us. And uh, then when we got out to Apollo, uh, Apollo, there was uh, the wheels wouldn't come down on the airplane, and so the airplane circled around many many times and went way up and it did many maneuvers and then it was starting to get dark and they were starting to run out of fuel and so the pilot went way up high and then he just let the plane fall and then it, as it got near the ground he did a, an abrupt uh, maneuver that changed the flight back up so that there would be a, a kind of a tension on the bottom of the airplane. And he did that three times. And on the third time, the wheels came down and we landed. And then we were stranded in town because we had only planned to be there a day or two, but we had to wait, I think, eight eight or nine days until the next flight, which was okay because Apollo was a very nice place. It was warm and nice waterfalls and about 8,000 feet uh, up, which is much lower than the you know, the top of the Andes of La Paz, where we left from. Anyway... Uh, it turns out the dialect wasn't all that interesting. It was an, it was it was interesting, but it was actually one that had come there from Peru, and so it wasn't as different as everyone said it was. It was just from somewhere else.
0: This was uh, in Chile, or Argentina? this was in this was in Bolivia. Bolivia,
1: oh, okay. uh, and then and then, uh, so we left, and there was a very a much smaller plane this time, but fewer of us, and we remembered on the way out that the plane was flying through these passes in the Andes, and so you could look out the windows and see the wings almost scraping the mountains, going through these mountain passes. Well, on the way back, it was all fogged in, and so the pilot was flying by his watch. And he'd watch his watch for a while and fly, and then he would, he would change the direction of the airplane by his watch. And this was really scary, because it was scary enough going out when you could see the mountains. And it turns out that there was no bubonic plague in the area, and the gorillas were a long way away. But the commandante, the guy in charge of the military uh, base there, was drunk when we landed, and so he kept alternatively demanding that we either give him the contraband or that we give him our documents, and we didn't want to do either. We didn't have any contraband, of course. Uh, he was demanding the contraband in Portuguese and the documents in Spanish. <laughs> anyway, we convinced him we would turn in the documents in the morning when we could write it down officially, and he was. Still drunk in the morning, so we give it to a second in command, and uh, so that's the long story. That's a long story about uh, this sort of field work. It was it was an interesting it was an interesting experience.
0: Yeah, what an experience! Wow.
1: And, and you probably don't need any more stories than those, <laughs> although I can tell you a few. Well,
0: my next question was. Can you tell us about a non-research-related challenge? But having a plane that doesn't have wheels that comes down sounds like
1: well, I, that, that's part of the research, I guess. Mm, the definitely. transport. I think the non-research challenges, especially in you know in many of the the many of the developing countries of the world that people work with endangered languages. It very often has to do with just the visa problems and the the, the problems of police wanting bribes and. The bureaucracy being almost impossibly cum- cumbersome, mm-hmm. some of the other problems have to do with, depending on what part of the world you are in, there are people who are very, uh, they're very unhappy about outsiders coming to research to do research with, with their languages or their cultures, and sometimes it's a, it's a, it's a very delicate, you have to do very, very delicate things to be able to win over people's trust enough to be allowed to to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never had much problem with that, but sometimes it did, it did take time and you had to cultivate mm-hmm. uh, cultivate the, the, the trust to be allowed to work there. In North America, it can be very, very difficult where tribes and tribal councils just have prohibitions about the so- certain sorts of things that can be done, or they own the data if you do do research and, and they don't want it to be made available to other people sometimes. for Sometimes for good reasons and other times because they might not have understood the, well the purpose of the data in the first place. There are all kinds of channels, challenges like that that have to do with transportation and bureaucracy and, and uh, living conditions and, and things like that. I guess these are the things we don't teach our students very much in field methods classes because we're so interested in, lear- in learning how to deal with eliciting data and analyzing data and, and describing it. And, yeah, you
0: know. absolutely. Um, can you tell us if you've had any data loss horror stories?
1: I haven't. Uh, oh, I, lucky. But, <laughs> but, I, but I know people who have had some very horrible ones. I, one of the students who was in a department I was in had her whole dissertation with all the data in the back of her car, and someone broke in the trunk and stole it, and she didn't have a copy.
0: Oh, and
1: dear. A uh-huh. long time ago in the Soviet Union days, a linguist who, you know, it was very, very hard to get permission to work with languages in the Soviet Union, and so a linguist worked there, uh, and I think he spent a year and six months in the community, or at least working with uh, speakers from the community, and he had all these recordings and all his data, and it was all lost on the airplane on the way home. A whole year's worth of work was lost. I think the moral of all this, especially nowadays when we have good computers and things, is you know, back up and back up and then back up and have it in multiple sites.
0: Yeah, yes, definitely. We, we had another guest share a, a story where her car had been broken into and she had lost all of her data, uh, and this was back in the days of analog where uh, it was not true. so easy to make copies right, right. and backups.
1: Yeah, um, the one I was talking about was before. Uh, I'm not sure. It, it might have been early in computer days, but she hadn't made a, ba- a backup. Yeah. Cause it was really bad. I mean, sometimes people make backups, but they keep it in the same place, and then the house burns down, or the thieves get it, and then you're just out of luck. Yeah,
0: right. yeah, definitely. Can you speak a bit about how has the field of documentary linguistics changed since you've started? Oh,
1: well, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, I think, you know, different scholars will have different takes on it. And in in, uh, in my history, I began about the same time that Chomsky and transformational generative linguistics was very very powerful and so there was a tendency for people to avoid to do to want to do theoretical things and to avoid doing descriptive documentary type things but still even in that period of time there are many many people writing doing language description and writing dissertations on indigenous languages and endangered languages Sometimes using that model and sometimes not so it never it never it never died it just was uh, pushed back and the interests weren't as it wasn't as central. Fortunately, after about 1990 you know the the need to do research on endangered languages and to document them and help with revitalization became a, a priority in linguistics. some people would say it's the highest priority in linguistics and even in many of the social sciences, and so that, 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 the attitude changed markedly, very markedly. The uh, other thing that changed was with Nicholas Himmelmann's paper about trying to make a distinction between language documentation and language description. I personally think that that was a very unfortunate sort of split. There were good things that came of it, we really did need to incorporate the technology better, and we really did need to do a better job of you know, getting more, more genres incorporated in our descriptions and, and the various things that were advocated, but at the same time, if all you do is collect texts and then you never get the analysis, then your job isn't done. Uh, so I never gave up the, the typical American version of language documentation, which I think most people working in American Indian languages never gave up. And that was the, the typical Boasian approach, that language documentation meant a grammar, a dictionary, and abundant texts. And I think now it's evolved back so that everyone recognizes the value of all of those things, although some people spend more time dealing with the, the archiving technology side of things and, other, and others spend more time dealing with the, the data collection and analysis side of things but I yeah but so it, it has had its history and it's, it's changed over time. I think it's all been good though I don't think it's ever been it's ever been bad other than the bad part of not having enough linguists to, and, and trained native speakers and activists to do the kind of work that needs to be done.
0: Yeah thank you finally, um, what advice would you give someone who is about to go into the field for the first time?
1: Well, good question, but I guess it needs some context, so advice for, you know, how to deal with bureaucracies, or <laughs> advice of how to deal with universities, or advice about how to deal with communities, or, uh, you know, all of those things, there are stories about how you'd best want to approach all those various things. I think if. If you simply have no background at all and, and you contemplate this, then, then the first thing is to get some training, get enough training in, in linguistics or some parallel field that allow you to actually do the kind of collection and, and management and, and analysis of the data that, that would allow you to do a good job. If you already you know have some background and, and, and then the question is what language would you choose? Well. You can go to the Catalog of Endangered Languages uh, at uh, uh, endangeredlanguages.com, and uh, if, you, if you want, you can do a triage and select the most endangered languages in the world. Uh, that, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to talk to people that are in areas that you're interested in, or some people will go to areas that they have some personal or family connection to or, or some other interest that connects them to them. So the choice of language has, has various variables. The advice I think I would give that I, I don't see very often from other people or in you know manuals for how to do field work is and I, I assume it works differently in different parts of the world but it's it's very really hard to just show up and knock on doors and say hey talk to me and let me do this kind of documentation project I want to do. It's, re- it's very important if you can, to go through all the proper channels of getting, you know, letters from your university supervisors, colleagues, whatever, to get letters from indigenous institutes or people of some stature in there in the country where you're going to work. And then it's important when you try to go to the communities to deal with people that can put you in contact with speakers and others that are interested. And so. Often, if you can show up with a, a letter from the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Culture, or whatever that says that you're a good person, good person, and the purpose of your project is to try to collect data that will be useful for education and for the uh, community's language interests. And then, if you, then with that, you can go to either the mayor or whoever the headman in the village is. Uh, and if you don't have that, you can still go and try to talk to the local leaders, the village the mayor or the, or the chief or the headman, or whatever. And sometimes you can go to the missionaries who have confidence with local people, they've been accepted, and they can then introduce you to some people and say, this is what this person's about. But introductions are really important. If you just show up on the spot, it can take months to, or you may never, it may never actually even be, you may never be allowed to do it, but it, it, it can also just take months for you to make the kinds of connections where they finally figure out that that you're the sort of okay person and the project is okay enough to allow you in. Mm-hmm. But these permissions, getting the permissions and doing it properly are, is incredibly important. I think one other important piece of advice is don't listen when they say you shouldn't turn down drinks and food or anything that they offer you. That's just stupid. <laughs> if you have spent thousands of dollars, maybe your own or somebody else's, to get, to get the equipment and, the, and to travel to some place and to begin a project it's utterly wrong-minded to then eat something that something that the locals have offered you that's going to make you sick and then you just have to abandon the project. Every Everyone everywhere understands that there are things that make people ill and that there are things people don't like and all you have to do is just say very politely that thank you very much but, but you know, this, this, my, my, my stomach won't deal with this or it makes me sick or, well, maybe not, but I, I get ill or I, I can't eat it because, and it's never a problem. Mm-hmm. Even though sometimes you read the handbooks and they say you, you should take everything they offer you regardless of mm-hmm. what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's important advice uh, to yeah. protect yourself so that you can actually get the project done.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that can apply to more than just food to, to set boundaries where oh, yeah. you need to, to oh, sure. be able to continue working oh, right, at a yeah. high capacity.
1: Oh, yeah. All kinds of cases of you know young people flirting with people in the village and then getting kicked out or maybe doing more than flirting. But uh, the, the kinds of liaisons that you create, <laughs> particularly if they involve romance or, or, or anything beyond that, uh, those can be incredibly uh, Horrible for the fate of a project, you know, and, and and you have to exercise ethics. The, not some some of those things are not permitted, and you you have to play by the local ethical rules, not by mm-hmm. your outsider rules.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, well, thank you so much, Lyle. And can you tell us where listeners can learn more about your work? Do you have a website? They can buy your books.
1: I guess there's a website. Uh, I have a website at the Department of Linguistics in, at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I think on that it has it has my curriculum vitae, and I think there are several papers, but I think you can also just, if you want to read things, I think you can just click my name on Google Scholar, mm-hmm. and there will be several things that will come up that you can see to read i'm happy to receive email and send things to people too if they're interested
0: wonderful great and i will link in the show notes uh your website so that okay. they can find that easily okay. thank you so much there's a,
1: there's a wikipedia page too but it's not very helpful okay <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much very welcome It's a pleasure
0: You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui-Billens, with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by e Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening. (音楽) Thank you.